Hello and welcome to the Chris Wolf Podcast on iCode Media. Today, I had on Dr. Harvey Hanlon, who is a past president of the American Optometric Association. He has been in group practice, private practice, and at 70 years old, that's what he's doing currently, and he's, he's thoroughly enjoying it. This sort of wraps up my three-part discussion with people, really four-part discussion that really extends back into November with people interested in private equity. I've, I've, I've tried to explore this topic to really try to figure out what is the end game for private equity within, within the profession. Um, I think uh, his perspective is probably the most similar to mine uh, in terms of all the people I've had discussions with. I hope you enjoy it. It was a fun discussion to have with Harvey. We kind of talk about his progression through um, the AOA, what was happening when he was chair of Federal Relations Committee back in the 80s, to um, to his progression into becoming a, a solo practitioner or then into a group practice and and that evolution and then um, and then starting a new practice after he had retired for a while. So it was a fun conversation. I hope you all enjoy it. As always, please subscribe to the podcast, give us a five star review, and support those who support us. One of the things that it took me a while to wrap my mind around was the need for utilizing a silicone hydrogel lens for my patients who wear daily contact lenses. Nearly all of my patients who wear a frequent replacement lens wear a silicone hydrogel material. However, until a few years ago, very few of my one-day lens prescriptions were for silicone hydrogel. Part of this was the options we had available, and part of it was cost. At least my perception of the cost. What I was forgetting is that patients wearing a one-day lens are still wearing their lenses for 14 to 16 hours, and they would benefit from a more oxygen permeable lens. You may have the perception, as I did, that a one-day lens made with silicon hydrogel material are going to be too costly for our patients. However, studies show that patients want us to offer them the healthiest options regardless of price. I make it simple to the patient. I explain why I'm prescribing a particular lens based on their complaints or based on what I'm seeing clinically. It sounds like this. Bob, you're wearing a contact lens for most of your day, and in the past, we didn't have as many options for putting you in a daily lens that also allows for optimal oxygen transmission. We now have an option that does this and is as cost-effective as older lenses that you're in. I would love to see how this lens feels to you and looks on your eyes. Done. That's the conversation, and I haven't had one patient who has not wanted to try it. Clarity One Day is an affordable silicone hydrogel lens our patients are thankful we discussed with them. Check out the show links for references and see for yourself how to move beyond cost and focus on what's best for our patients. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, impressed me when I met Frederick for the first time was that um, it was actually at the last administrator meeting and he... Um, he actually presented the Goldman Sachs kind of ultimate outcome. Did, did he used to work for Goldman Sachs? No, he worked on Wall Street, though. He worked on Wall Street. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so then, um, so I think, I think, Harvey, what you and I were talking about before, I kind of want to pick up that conversation, but we'll go back a little bit. Um, you made the comment that um, it amazed you that younger doctors had no idea that we didn't have the ability to bill Medicare at some point in time. Yes. So talk about that. Well, you know, I've been in practice a long time. I've been in practice 46 years. Been very active in AOA and the state association. And, and back when I was involved, um, we didn't have any, any rights to bill Medicare or any, in medical, any commercial medical insurances because they didn't recognize optometrists as physicians in their categories. So in uh, late, eight, uh, late 1986, we were successful in passing... Medicare privilege for optometrists, thanks to the help of Senator Barbara Mikulski from Maryland. And it actually started April 1st of 1987, where optometrists could bill for medical services as physicians under Medicare. Well, today, you know, it, this is, you know, 30 years later, 33 years later, and the average younger doctor makes the assumption we've always been able to do that. When in fact, when I started out, we couldn't even use diagnostic agents back when I graduated school. So going from diagnostics to therapeutics to becoming physicians under both Medicare and commercial medical insurances, it changed the entire uh, scope of what we could do as independent private doctors. I mean, that's, that's kind of what we were talking about today is that 
you know, we, we have these large scope of practices in many states and we've got these continued advancements, but, but the limitation in some states is really, it's real where you've got you know, a scope of practice that allows you to do something, but effectively you can't do it because you can't get paid for it. Correct. And so um, to, to forget the ability, even just with Medicare, that, that parity is, is pretty staggering. Oh, it is. How, it's, long, how long did it take? Sorry to interrupt, but how long did it take to actually pass that bill? Oh, AOA probably worked work on that on bill for almost 20 years. Wow. So they started in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, and um, we got shut out. You know, the, 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 um, both the ophthalmological and the, and the medical lobby in Washington is huge. Hmm. And uh, it took a real a person that was really willing to fight the fight for us and be with us. Uh, to be able to get that passed. And As so finally, finally, and it, the same thing as the states, but yeah. at a smaller level than you're dealing with it in the federal level. Yeah. But, you know, we all went through these battles in our state associations and we're still going through those battles. You're going through another increase in your bill. We're, we have a scope bill in our yeah. legislature yep. right now. And, and, and yet you have states like Massachusetts that still can't treat glaucoma. I mean, they're still fighting that fight and they've been fighting it every session and, and so opt, an optometrist is not an optometrist is not an optometrist. We all have similar educations, but you can go from not being able to treat anything to being able to do surgical skills. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. I mean, one of the things Daniel Carey and I, who's the director of, of state government relations committee. And I, I told Daniel, I said, you know, Daniel, they're probably going to get tired of me as chair of SGRC sometime. So, you know, I, we were, we were talking actually in Arizona a couple months ago when I was down here for a, um, a meeting with uh, some AGs, and um, and I said, you know, I don't know how, how much longer the board's gonna to- <laughs> gonna tolerate me, and I I do believe that I have a shelf life, and at some point, um, at some point, then I've I've used that shelf life, and they're gonna, and that's okay, I, I'm that's okay, but I said, yeah, I'm not sure what what will happen. You know, the emails will stop. You get used to kind of that constant flow. You got it as president. You got it as board of trustees member. You got it as as FRC member. Oh, yeah. And he said, well, you know, maybe you would want to do like uh, federal relations. And I said, man, that moves so slow. I mean, 20 <laughs> years. I, I mean, they've been fighting for the doc access bill right now for since I was in school. Yep. You know, it's probably, I remember at first probably 13 years ago. Yeah. So that, I mean, so how long were you chair of FRC? Uh, I was chair a total of five years. I had a year break in between when I was the chairman of the Battelle outcome study, which is the study that came out on post-operative care, post-cataract surgery, post-operative care for optometry. Mm. Um, so I was a total chair of five years before I got on the AOA board. And so that, that um, talk about that study. That was probably a pivotal study that showed that outcomes were equivalent, whether an optometrist Yes. Was- yeah. We were able to show that we provided not only as good, but better care for the post-cataract patient. And, uh, and we're very successful in, in, in the outcome of that. And mm. I was a chair of that study utilizing the Battelle Institute for the study. When, before you could bill Medicare, tell me about how you would manage patients once they got to 65. I mean, how, I mean there's, there's, yeah, I mean, people always work for an ophthalmologist. I mean, what, you, talk, talk about it. You, well, anytime a patient had a medical condition, first of all, back then, we couldn't really treat a whole lot. Because we didn't even have the scope of practice in Pennsylvania to do it back then. So what you were doing was referring all these patients out. The problem with that is when you refer patients out, rarely did they ever come back. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's still an issue today when you're, when you're sending uh, a patient to another, what I call general ophthalmology right. to me, yep. is primary eye care. Yep. It's, it's optometry it, that does a little surgery exactly. on the side. Yep. And, and 80% of the ophthalmologists, general ophthalmologists, don't do any surgery. Yeah. They practice optometry. Is that right? In, oh, yeah. In Pennsylvania? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, and they've said this for years, uh, 80% of the surgery is done by 20% of the doctors. Well, I and believe so, that. So, therefore, you have them practicing basically optometry yep. as an ophthalmologist. Yep. And not even as good. Oh, yeah. not nowhere near yeah. as good. Yeah. No. They spend five minutes with the patient. Their tech does all the work. They see 60 patients a yes. day. Quality of care is really not there. There's no patient... Uh, uh, trust because there's no, not enough time to create that, that relationship that we've had as optometrists. I was talking to my dad on the way down here and a lot of this was fresh in my mind because we just went through our hearing yesterday. But, um, you know, what an advantage 
ophthalmology has. I mean, forget about, I mean, on the one hand, they have the advantage of, oh, I went to medical school with all my buddies. And so they're just going to feed me patients throughout my entire practice. But, you know, we have such a disadvantage because not even just that, but, you know, you talk about Medicare parity and the reality is, is that um, there are a lot of insurance plans that optometrists still can't get on that, that it's pervasive. The only eye care you can have is ophthalmology on those plans. Correct. And, and I mean, what an advantage, like what a clear advantage um, that they've got. And, and there's no reason for that advantage except for they are part of the establishment. They're part of the family. Exactly. They're the MD. MD does not mean major difference, by the way. Contrary to what they've said for years, that's what it stands for. It does not stand for that at all. It's a fraternity. Yes. yes. And, and that's problematic. Let me give you an example today. Um, even to this day in the state of Pennsylvania, Highmark, which is one of the biggest insurance companies, does not pay optometrists for post-operative care in the commercial side under the age of 65. Hmm. Every, other, every other commercial insurance company in the state of Pennsylvania will pay optometrists for post-operative cataract care for patients under 65. And of course, they go into Medicare Advantage plans or Medicare. Over 65, we get paid. Highmark still doesn't pay it. Hmm. In fact, I got re-involved in our legislative committee this year after being the chairman <laughs> 25 years ago hmm. because of not only our scope bill, but we're now working with within the third-party committee yep. in our state to try to do that. They have a meeting with Highmark next week to go over these things again. Yeah. And we're trying to uncover all those things so that they can have a meeting and see if we can't get some of this repaired because it's crazy. Yeah. It, what's your, so Bob's on that. Is Bob chair again? Bob Biddle? Bob Biddle is back chairman of our scope of our legislative right. committee. Right. I'm, Bob asked me to serve with him this Great. year. And so I'm back on that. Yep. Greg Caldwell is the chairman of our third party committee. Okay. And so he, Greg is, is having meetings with these uh, carriers to discuss issues that we're having. Yeah. Do you think, is it, is it, so we've seen a couple of these things. So like in Nebraska, for example, there was a payer that was man, just mandating discounts like that weren't covered, just non-covered services discounts as a medical payer. So that they say, we want, we want you to have 70, 17% off of any materials that you sell in your practice. And, and they, you know, on the one hand, they didn't really care about it. They were sort of, it was in the, in the provider manual, um, but they weren't marketing it. You know, I'm, I'm sure they weren't marketing it to people. And so it was just a throwaway for them. And, but it was like actually sort of a big issue that went away with just a meeting, just like letting them know. And they, it quietly went away. They didn't come out and say, we're going to do this. But, you know, we said, look, this is not right. And I think they probably saw it like, yeah, we don't really care about it. We're not using it to sell the plans. We're just doing it. And nobody's complained about it before. Is that what's going on in, in Pennsylvania or is it's that there's a deeper kind of underlying stuff that's going I, on? I believe there's a deeper underlying issue that goes back many, many years and nobody really has brought it back to the table. So it's sort of been mm -hmm. laying there for a long time. So I have a local ophthalmologist that I work closely with and he's a corneal specialist, uh, sends me a lot of scleral lenses. I do mm -hmm. a lot of that kind of work in my practice and, um, we know that if the patient's 64 years old and has high mark, he's going to do the post-operative right. care because right. it's silly for me to do it and not get paid. And my attitude is just finish the patient and he'll send him back to yeah. me. But it's illogical because had but it they'll been, pay you for the other care. So oh, after yes. post-op's done, they come back to you and they'll pay you for the other. Oh, prior, primary to that, if they have a dry eye or treating glaucoma, they pay me for all of that. Right. It's only post-operative mm. cataract care for under the age of 65. It's not logical. No. It hasn't been brought up in a long time. We want to bring it up, and the third-party committee is going to bring it up next week. Maybe we can finally resolve that issue. Well, in theory, it could cost them even more money because if the patient seeks your care during that post-operative period rather than going back to the surgeon, mm -hmm. because perhaps you're more convenient or they like you more or they, or they want your opinion, they're going to have to pay for that, right? The, the, because it's a... You, with a, with a separate modifier, right? Because it's even though it's in the post-operative period, they sought your care and they're not covering that. Only if the care was not, not related, related to, to the their post-operative okay. surgery. Right. So if it was a dry eye issue, corneal abrasion issue, things like that, of course you modify it, you get paid within the post-operative period. If it was related to their cataract surgery, they're not going to pay right. and I'm not going to get paid. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, so then... Um, 
Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic to be in because then you have a patient that's reaching out to you during the post-operative period as your as their physician, and you can't know for sure whether that is related to the 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 operation or if it's related to one of these other conditions. So you're obligated to probably manage the patient at least or figure out a way to triage them back to this. I mean, that's a challenge. Sure, but but what do we do? Yeah, you tra- you take care of them. You take care of the of patient because they're still the most important person in your in your in your life at that point in time you know the patient in my chair is the most important person I see yeah and and, and I know doctors worry about schedule I never worry about schedules because if I'm late and I'm in an, and I say to a patient sorry I was finishing up with another patient and by the way now you're the most important person to yeah. me yeah so so you're going to take care of them so you don't get paid for it but the point is there's something that's right and something that's wrong we have to fix the wrong and make it right and that's what the goal is. Yeah. You know, one of the things I think about with, uh, and this is more related to scope, but I've been thinking about it obviously a lot for a long time, but the idea of Medicare and actually the parity that we get with Medicare speaks volumes in my opinion. What that says is that when I deliver care, and, and this I'm sure this rubs ophthalmology just raw, but when I deliver care, for a specific patient with a specific condition, and I understand the value of that care and I bill Medicare for it, they view my services as being just as good because they pay me just as much as they pay the ophthalmologist. Correct. And um, and that actually speaks a lot in, as far as safety and if, uh, effectiveness um, of our profession from a scope of practice standpoint. Look, it, Medicare is saying we are every bit as valuable as ophthalmology is when they're making those. If, if we, they didn't think so, they would pay us less. No question about it. Let me give you a, a, a historical thing you'll, you'll get a kick out of. So back in 1986, of course, we passed the law. We, in 1987, we implement Medicare. So now we're going over to, to CMS in Baltimore and talking about payment for post-operative care. And at that point in time, I was on federal relations and the liaison to CMS. And I would travel with our AOA Washington office director, at that time was Jeff Mays, good friend of mine for many, many years. And we would meet with them and we said, we really don't want 20% of the co-managed care. What we want to do is pay for the visits we see the patient. And they said, well, Dr. Hanlon, we can't do that because we only pay 80-20 on post-operative care. He said, but why wouldn't you want that? He said, remember, cataract surgery, they're paying $2,100. Hmm. And both Jeff Mays hmm. and I said, because in the future, it won't be $2,100. Hmm. It's you going to go foresight. down. And so we said, and this is back in 1987, we said 20% of $2,100 is a good number right now. 20% of $800 or $900 isn't such a good number yeah. for the same care yeah. that we render. And of course, what is reimbursement for surgical care today? Yeah. It's under $800. Yeah. Okay. So we tried to negotiate that back in 1987, but said, look, you're, you know, your physicians under Medicare, we do 80, 20. Mm-hmm. And we said, okay, then, you know, we'll mm-hmm. take it, but we know it's going to happen. Yeah. And it did. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> interesting. Well, I mean, it's it, it is definitely changing the dynamics of, you know, if you're a right now, if you're a general ophthalmologist that doesn't do a lot of surgery, I'll see these gossy patients that um, that see a general ophthalmologist and then they come to me for another opinion, and and they've got you know twenty eighty cataracts or twenty seventy cataracts, and uh, they've got you know a couple pairs of glasses. And I'm like, what the heck is this guy doing? Is he just not looking or and I actually think what happens is they've realized their surgical skills aren't that good. So they're going to wait until this patient's really, 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 really needs cataract surgery. And and so in doing that, but they can also sell them a pair of glasses. Correct. And selling them a pair of glasses is worth more to them than doing the cataract surgery that they're not very good at doing. Correct. And that's what they'll do. Oh, absolutely. My whole outlook at cataracts has changed uh, and I, I used to hold on to the patient longer before I sent them. And my whole outlook changed about when a year and a half ago when I had my cataracts removed. <laughs> and I went, wow, this is great. I love this. And I say, patients, look, I had it done. You know, I went through in my career after 46 years, when I got hard contact lenses, my patients wanted hard contact lenses. Mm. 
When I want to soft contact lens, they wanted soft contact lenses. When I had LASIK, they wanted LASIK. Mm. Now I had cataract surgery and they come to me and say, Harvard, my cataract's ready yet. I want to have my cataracts <laughs> out. So, you know, you develop these relationships with your patients and they figure, hey, if you did it. And then they say, who did yours? That's who I want to yes, do mine. Of course. And that's the other thing. So it's a trust fact. Of course. You know, and, and you've been part of their family for a long time and you get to know them. Yeah. And so it's, it's listen, private practice optometry is amazing. Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, that's, I think that's kind of it's a good segue into the next into the next stance, and that's kind of why I wanted to have you on. Is that, you know, I've had these kind of over the last few weeks and and actually a few months on the podcast, people talking about private equity and and um, and then you know your perspective is really valuable because you've got the kind of whole swath of seeing where the profession has come, what we've had to struggle through as you know as a as a past AOA president. Um, as being involved in your state, as having, my understanding is you were in a large practice and then you sold it and then you opened up on your own again. And so like all that perspective, Yeah, I'm trying to, I guess, so, and then we have private equity and that's, that is a hot topic. It is just one I'm interested in because I'm just figure, trying to figure out what is the end game, the end, end game, right? Not the first spinoff, not the second spinoff. What's the end, end game? What happens? So, so we could talk about all of that. Wherever you okay. want to start. Well, I think. Well, first of all, I I, I was in a, a in a two doctor practice. I okay. came out of school, went into a partnership with a doctor twenty five years older than me. It was a wonderful partnership. It worked out great. Uh, it was like my father practicing with my dad, and <laughs> which was nice. Then, of course, he retired. I was in private practice by myself for a year, and then I put a, a group together. We merged four practices and hmm. created a large practice in State College, hmm. Pennsylvania. And um, unfortunately, after about 10 years, we had six partners, very difficult to manage, a mm-hmm. um, little frustrating. Mm. Uh, Tell me, wait, let me stop you. Tell me about that. Yeah. I don't want you to badmouth your partners. No, no. I, I, and I know you wouldn't do that, no, no. But, but tell me about why does that happen? So, because I've seen this, I've, I've, I have seen it um, where it, it was, it did spin off into private equity and I'm seeing it again. Uh, I, I wish the best for them. I hope, I hope it works out really well, but I look at that and I'm like, man, that that seems like it's not gonna. It, it has a. It's wrought with potential uh, issues. So tell me about that. Well, when we merged the practice, there were four doctors, okay. and we were colleagues in an area, and we said maybe we could uh, consolidate our expenses, provide the good care, and and be able to 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 make something a little bigger, do a better job for patients. So we merged practice, stayed in our own locations for about two years, mm-hmm. built a building, a beautiful new building. Hmm and merged us all together in the building. And then we needed another doctor, a new doctor came in. Um, I, I would have waited a little longer to have that, to have that doctor uh, buy in as a full partner, but they wanted an equal say, and that's, mm-hmm. that's what happens. And then we did it again, so there ended up being six partners in it. Well, the difficulty, I think, is when you have such a tremendous difference in background, where you came from, when you were educated and what you learned that there became a real separation of where the practice should go. Hmm. And it really separated more on age lines than it did on anything else. We did have an older doctor that tended to side with the two younger doctors. So we were stuck in a three to three situation constantly. Hmm. And, and we provided great care. That wasn't the issue. The issue was the frustration of trying to deal with it every day was one that finally got to me and 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 I said, you know, I, I'm just not having as much fun as I used to. Mm. And um and at that point in time I, I opted to mm. to retire because that was in our contract, sell my practice. I had a restrictive covenant, which I'm a firm believer if you have a contract, to me it doesn't have to be in writing. If I shake your hand it's yeah, a contract. Of course. I'm old school. As I say, <laughs> as I like to say, I'm old school, classic ESPN. You know, that's just the way I am. <laughs> and um, and then I decided I really, really miss seeing patients. So I, my wife and I bought a building. And what I've learned in that we're now our 10th anniversary in March hmm. of opening the new practice. So at age 60, I opened a new practice, cold. Hmm. And although I'd been in that town for a long time, people still think you're retired. They don't know where you're yeah. at. We see them in the grocery stores as how's retirement. I said, well, I've been in practice for five years. They had no idea. Yeah. So the practice continued to grow, but it's hard. That's difficult. Um, 
we've been very successful. We, I like the kind of care we provide. I don't see tons of patients because I spend a lot of time with my patients. But um, there's, there's a phrase I use that I learned from a gentleman in Florida when he said, I finally learned in my life what partners are good for, and generally it's dancing. Um, <laughs> uh, and I told my wife, you're the only partner I want to have for the rest of my professional life. And so that was just for me. Yeah. And um, no, nothing negative about, about large groups. It's just I felt that I wanted to spend more time and spend, see fewer patients, provide better care. We have a very high-tech practice. Mm-hmm. You know, everything's computerized, electronic. I spared nothing. And you now have some AI. We now have <laughs> a little artificial intelligence. People think that's me, but it's not. <laughs> it's a piece of instrumentation. I do a lot of work with macular degeneration. I happen to believe retina is the next horizon in optometry. I've felt that for a number of years. And uh, it's fun. It's fun for me. This is, I was always in the political side of optometry. I now have gotten more into the research side, which has been really a lot of fun. Yeah. So it's been an interesting evolution over the last period of time. Yeah. Well, yeah. I've seen, I've seen, you know, big practices work and I, I think they can. I think mm-hmm. it's just, you have to have a really, you have to really be cautious, I think, about that dynamic. Well, I think you need, you have to have a management style that, that can control how things go. Um, it can't be a freewheeling kind of thing mm. where there's not controls over that. Mm. Uh, I think it could work. Yeah. And and I was hoping it would work. And it worked for a while. And then it just got too big for me. Do you so. still um, do you still get along with your old partners? Uh, or is I, there, I is get there along enough? with I get along with most of them. There's yeah. a couple that we don't really see eye to eye, but but that's okay. Yeah. There's no, there's no I I don't badmouth them. They don't provide they provide good care. Um, you know I don't look at as as colleagues as as competitors i look at them as colleagues yeah i've always felt that way you want to open next door to me that's okay because if i'm not convincing enough that my patients want to see me and they want to see you that's shame on me yeah that's all yeah no that's so, a great attitude to yeah, have i've never never worried about that so then so parlay that into how you view is private equity different than a large partnership yes. and if so how so yeah i i i've been very um, committed to independent private practice. Um, when I was AOA president, my theme that year was practice management university. And, uh, and we actually, uh, Neil Gelmard at that point in time, Neil was my chairman mm. and traveled all over the country doing programs for AOA under practice management university. And so I feel very, very committed to independent private practice. Uh, I think the dynamic that's changed is private equity companies you still have the same doctors, but you have a corporate thought process that goes on in the practice. And until the doctor can have total control over what's going on with all the decisions that's going on, mm. I think that takes away ultimately from the, from the, from the total patient care whether it be delivery of service, but more importantly for this, in this venue, for material usage in the practice and what they choose, which is not chosen by the doctor many times in these in private mm-hmm. equity companies, it's chosen by the company and who they chose to partner with. And that's where the, the rub comes. Private equity is not all terrible. Sure. Okay. Private equity is an alternative for many doctors who don't have an out in private practice. I'm 70 years old. Well, that's, I don't I, have yeah. a succession plan. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I have a doctor that works for me that's two years older than me. He's uh. not buying my practice. <laughs> okay. And I've been approached by private equity. I am committed that I don't want to do that. That's not for me. First of all, I could never work for them. My wife says I'd be a terrible employee anyway. You'd um, have to just leave. I'd have to leave. Yeah. But then, then if I did that, I wouldn't have value to them Therefore, they wouldn't, of they wouldn't make the deal. So in, in my situation, from what the conversation I had with one of them was, they really didn't care about my practice because my practice isn't that big. Hmm. We're only open four days a week, no evenings, no Saturdays. We're, only, we're closed Fridays. So it's a, it's a different kind of practice. Um, they wanted to buy my practice for me and yep. who I could bring in from the people I know nationally yep. To, to sell their practice. Well, that's not me. That's not me. Um, so I, when I talk to a doctor, I've talked to a number of them that ended up 
at least listening to the offer from, from private equity. My only concern for independent private doctors is have you, have you asked all the right yeah, questions? Yeah. Do you know what's going to happen if you do it? The bottom line number that they're paying you isn't the only thing. It's what happens in the next five years for you. Um, how much money is there really going to be there? What if the company goes under? Because many of these are going to go under. Yes. There's no question about that. There's too many of them. I don't want stock in a private equity company. That's I, I want to get out of my practice if I'm going to get out of it. I just want what I have coming to me. Yeah. And so I don't want my final number to be based on their success or failure. Right. right. Um, so I, I know a lot of doctors that have sold to private equity and we've had lots of conversations with them. And some of them say, it looks like it's going to be okay now. Some of them say, I'm not overly excited about it, but it was the only out I really had. Why do you think they felt like it was the only out? Is it because they're 70 and they don't have a succession plan? Yes, because exactly. Because I had a, two good friends of mine who, who were 70 and 72 yeah. who had an associate that was going to buy. And the associate at the last minute said, I'm not interested in buying the practice and left. Now think about this. Yep. So now you are 72 years old. You're going to have to bring in another associate. You're going to have to mentor them, teach them. That's a five-year deal. Yep. I don't care what anybody says. You, it's a five-year deal. Yep. That doctor doesn't want to be practicing at 77. Yeah. And so they said, and, and what happens if that happens again? Uh, and so it became very complicated. You know, my philosophy is very different. I mean, as age 70, I've been very blessed. I've had a very successful career. Worst case scenario, if I can't sell my practice, yep. I'll sell my equipment and close it. Yep. I don't care. Yep. I'm fine. Well, you know, I mean, to, to some degree, if you've planned well, right, at 70, you should be able to just walk away, you know, if you, and, and maybe, I mean, I don't know, you know, we, we've been committed. I've told my investment guys, this is, this is the age I want to be able to retire. Like, right. I don't have to retire. In fact, I'm not planning on it. In fact, I don't think I will probably retire. There's things that I, in my mind, I, I, unless, you know, some, you know, something happens, right. My, my idea would be, I, I would always be doing something. I think that's just, Sure. I am. But, um, but like, I'd like to be able to retire at this point. And, um, and so I'm listening to them and I'm following their instructions to do that. And part of that plan really to get to that number has not been, I mean, yeah, the practice is there, but I'm not, that is not included in that number right, right. now. Right. Absolutely. It, it, so, so anything, and I haven't even really thought about that, but you know, wow. Okay. I mean that number. That number could be a lot bigger if the practice is included. If it's not, I'm I'm am fine. Right. right. Do you think most people think like that? No, not at all. I, I think what I find, and and I've also been a, a vision source administrator for 20 years. Mm -hmm. So it's and I have a very large group. I, I oversee over 100 practices, hmm. which keeps me involved in independent private practice in a different way. So um, my members talk to me all the time about their business. We talk about profit and loss. We talk about staff. We talk about how can we raise the water level in my practice? What can I do differently to separate me from other doctors? And that keeps me going yep. because, because and, and I've been very blessed because they trust me because I try to be honest with them. And um, so that's another angle that I've had that sort of keeps me going. And, and that's been very interesting. And then the most recent thing for me is I... I've never been involved in corporate optometry mm. ever in my whole life. Mm -hmm. Any company I've never been involved with. And recently in September became the director of professional relations for MacuHealth. Mm -hmm. So I was big into Macu, thank you, big into Macu Regeneration. Um, the gentleman that owns MacuHealth, Frederick Jouet, not only and I are close friends, but the science is unbelievable. The, the leading scientists in the world in macular pigment is Dr. John Nolan in Ireland. Dr. Nolan and I have been lecturing together for a number of years. Mm. He's a friend of mine and, and it's exciting. So I've been able to sort of broaden my perspective in the eye care field of not only private practice, helping other doctors trying to get their private practice going, but also looking at the science involved with patient care that sort of gives me another perspective. Yeah. So it's been really, it's, it's really broadened my horizons. It's made optometry every bit more fun for me 46 years later than it was even back then. Yeah. Well, so let me ask, so, okay. So you, you talk about, you, you know, Frederick. So answer me this and we'll, I do want to kind of move on a little bit to macular degeneration kind of with the last few minutes that I've got with you. But um, before we leave private equity, what's the end game? 
what happens? Well, I think the end game, you're going to see a lot of the companies go out of business. There's no question. There's probably only going to be maybe up to a half a dozen of them, if that many, that are going to make it. Um, I think it's going to, it changes the culture in, in some of the practices. Um, you know, we've been through private equity in buying medical practices before that ended up going under. I think, I'm not sure, they're, they're not all going to go under today. I believe they're going to continue, and I think they'll be purchased by somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the that the influence on independent practice is, is not what I would like to see uh, because I think doctors will make decisions not necessarily for the right reasons and how they what they're going to do is be controlled more by what the profit and losses of the business because that's what ultimately private equity wants. Yeah, it's it's you know it's not a philanthropic deal. Yeah, it's all about profitability. Yeah, so yeah. I think it's going to affect private practice adversely potentially, um, but it's still it's still an out for doctors that need an out and don't have an alternative. Yeah, so. It's interesting because I, I, the more I think about it, the you know I'm I'm with you. I think it's probably not all bad if I'm 70 years old and I want to I want to walk away and I haven't done well preparing for other things or those other things didn't pan out the way I thought they would pan right. out. Then and and I have an asset and somebody's willing to pay me and you're going to let me walk away pretty quick. Hey, I, I it's probably probably a pretty good deal. No question. Um, but uh, the the thing I keep coming back to is. You said it before. If you're not, um, if you're not in control of your practice, and I, in 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 control of exactly what's happening throughout that whole patient process, whether it's I want to spend an hour fitting a scleral lens for a patient because I don't, I want to, I want to help this patient, but I'm not. I need to, I need to also have that time to refine my skills, Correct. and and so, or maybe I'm going to add myopia control to my practice, but. Um, and so it's, but I'm not entirely comfortable with the conversations I'm going to have to have the processes in my practice. So I'm going to spend, and once I get a patient in that, that needs that, we're going to spend an hour with them, or I want to refine the processes with the detecting macular degeneration in my practice. I guess my point is, is that in a situation where the immediate dollar for the day is looked at and it's not controlled by you then you don't have the ability to integrate those things into your practice anymore. That's what I believe. I believe. I agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. They're going to control the number of patients you have to see. Yeah. Whether you like that or not is the, is, is another question. Yeah. Um, I can't see a lot more patients than I'm seeing now. I'm not going to change how I practice. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's right. And so, yeah. so and, and, the, and the other side of it is that I actually view it as sort of a pretty clear differentiator. I mean, I know that there's a lot of groups that are talking about, well, we're going to do the medical model. We're going to do it, all this kind of stuff. And, but, you know, the reality is, is that uh, that's going to go by the wayside. My impression is pretty quickly um, because it does take, it takes, as you know, significant mentorship to know what, and AB and I had this conversation a few months back, but it really hit me. It takes a significant amount of mentorship to understand what is going to happen when a patient, um, when when your flow and incorporating a new technology in your practice doesn't work or a patient's upset about it or whatever, because that happens whenever you are in, you're working out the kinks of a new protocol in your practice and you don't have somebody to sit there next to you and be like, you know what? Or you don't have the confidence because you ha- haven't had the, the length in practice to know that you can work those things out. You can work through some of those, you know, just flow issues that mm-hmm. might arise. If you don't have somebody that, that's really mentoring you well to understand that, uh, and to guide you through it, you're going to be, you will abandon that new technology or that new treatment quicker than you picked it up. Yep. I mean, I think about, I think about scleral lenses, for example, and, and if I didn't have my dad there, you know, working with me on, and he didn't even fit scleral lenses at the time, but knowing these are what, this is what happens with an irregular cornea patient. And to be like, yeah, that, you know, that, that's going to happen. This is how you tolerate it. And to have that reassurance through that, um, it, it, it's in, it's completely invaluable. And I, and I hope my dad listens to this episode because I, I, that's one of the things and many things I've never told him about, but I think it's so important that I don't, I just don't believe private equity can deliver that. I, I just don't believe it can. Well, they can't because they don't really care about that. Hmm. If it takes you an hour when that patient's in, and, and, and there's a lot of follow-up with scleral. I fit oh, yeah. a lot of so scleral, I. I yeah. lot of scleral lenses 
and uh, even the scleral multifocals, which have been sort of fun to do, um, it takes time. Yeah. And so, although everybody talks about, well, I'm making good money on it, if you really divide it out, yeah, it's not necessarily great money, but it it is so rewarding. It's yes. unbelievable. Yes. So now you take a a private equity company who basically says you have to produce X number of dollars, see X number of patients, you know, you can fit, you know, four progressive lens patients and make a whole lot more money than what you're going to do on your scleral lens patient right. and take less time. Yep. Is it as rewarding? Not for me. I don't want to lose that. Yeah. I don't want to lose that. I don't want to be, have my patients one after another be all the same. The one f fun thing about practice of optometry, the way I practice, I'm sure the way you do yep. as well, yep. is every patient's totally different. Yep. Totally right. To me, it's not, aren't you tired of doing this? Somebody asks me that all the time. Aren't you tired of doing this? It's not at all. Yeah. Well, don't you do the same thing all day long? Absolutely not. <laughs> every patient's different. Yep. And, and so that's what makes it so much fun. And that's what gives you a good feeling at the end of the day. You know, I was able to help a lot of people today. Yeah. That's a great thing. Yeah. I know. I, I, that's what I think too. Is if I was if I was just prescribing glasses all day long, you know, I, some some days I actually tell my dad, it's like, man, it would have been nice to see a two doctor, twenty year old two doctor myope today, <laughs> you know. And and I, I in all fair, in all honesty, I, I mean, but I, I love what I do. It, it's yep. complex, it's nuanced, um, and it's fun. But yes. it's it's hard. It is hard. And if I didn't, but I'll come back to a mentor. If I didn't have a mentor that really helped me through that process, there is no way. I would have I would have I would have stopped using my skills that I learned in school because I didn't have somebody to reinforce what I was doing and 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 the challenging cases to be able to reinforce and kind of guide me through that. Yeah. So grateful. Oh yeah. So yeah. let me ask you one one last question. Why do we need mesozeaxanthine? Well, I think the most important reason is because the the, the science has shown that the central carotenoid in the macula is mesozeaxanthine. And although um, those people that don't believe you need it for two reasons, one is because lutein converts to mesozeaxanthine, that's number one, not always true, because you don't know whether the conversion is there. Number two is you can't get enough mesozeaxanthine in your diet to be able to be adequate to do that. In fact, you can't get enough of a lot of the carotenoids in your diet. That's why they call them supplements. I had a retinal specialist <laughs> say to me, well, I don't believe in taking supplements, but that doesn't make any sense. You should have it in your diet. I said, the reason they call it supplements is because you, when you can't get it in your diet, you supplement your diet with something <laughs> called a supplement. Uh, there's been a lot of controversy over miso, I think over less now than there was yes. before. Yeah. Early on, there was a lot of controversy. I think the studies have, are very clear now. And it's not that meso works in a vacuum. It does not. Mm -hmm. Mesozeaxanthine works in conjunction with lutein and zeaxanthine together to give the optimal, the optimal increase in, in macular pigment optical density. Yeah. And so um, when you put them all together, you have the best combination. And the science has shown that and has, and has really given us the information that we need. So what would you say to somebody who is looking to, I mean, this doesn't need to be a sales pitch. I'm just talking in general. What would you say to somebody who says, I just do what AREDS tells me to do? Why do more? And, and I'll preface that by saying, and you and I know both that a lot of people are using AREDS in way outside the categories for AREDS. They're just using AREDS 2, AREDS 2, AREDS 2, AREDS 2 for everything, right. everybody. Right. So I guess I want, I want, Harvey, an AREDS 3 to tell me what to do. You're not, you're not going to have it because, hmm. and the reason you're not going to have it is because our problem is when you have government intervention in studies, hmm. it takes forever to get the study done. You know, don't forget AREDS 2 was a failure when it first started. They had to start it over. Hmm. You know, it's, it, you're, they're, you're dealing with technology that's, that, or science that's 13, 14 years old. You know, uh, you, you know, it's, I guess the analogy we use is, and, and I've talked with Frederick about mm -hmm. this is, you know, would you use a 14 year old cell phone? Yeah, I, I know. don't think so. Um, and it's changed. So when we talk about AREDS 2, and I think what a lot of people don't understand about AREDS 2, it's a little tricky, is the only company that can use the phrase mm -hmm. AREDS 2 is B&L. And the reason they are is because they bought the rights. The other How do they also, though, use the AREDS 1 dose of zinc and still use the AREDS 2 label? Well, 
That seems <laughs> wild. To the me. zinc issue is another whole issue. Emily yeah. Shu, um, they really never uh, admitted the issue with zinc. We do know this. You know, when when the uh, when the USDA says that women should take anywhere from eight to eleven or so milligrams of zinc a day, and men roughly eleven to thirteen in that ballpark, give or take a little bit, and then you turn around and give eighty milligrams of zinc with two Preservation. What happens to the zinc toxicity for those patients? Yeah. And um, and so what I do when I see patients, by the way, and I'm talking to them about their about their vision and the risk of macular degeneration, and if I find findings, whether it's dark adaptation, whether it's presence of drusen, whatever it is, I want them to bring in their multivitamins so I can see what else they're taking because mm. most of them are already taking zinc. Yeah. So you know the advantage we have, uh, and and again. It, although I now work for MacuHealth, but long before that, I, be- I was a believer in the formula, is that they also have a MacuHealth Plus, which has an AREDS2 formula, which does have 25 milligrams of zinc in it, uh, which is about the top end you'd ever want to go if you're going to use a, a supplement. <clears throat> but I, let me let me tell you what I tell optometrists to do, yeah. because every these retinal specialists, oh, the, all they do yep. is say AREDS2 yep. formula. Yep. And when you talk to them, they've never read a study. They, and, and they don't believe any study that's done outside of the United States. Right. Because nobody in the world's smarter than the United States. Well, of course. Which is ridiculous. So so here's what I tell optometrists to do who were believers, at least in MacuHealth like I am. Prescribe MacuHealth Plus. And in your letter to them saying they're taking AREDS2 plus MacuHealth, they're not even going to know what MacuHealth is, nor right. do they care. They saw AREDS2. They're happy. Yep. Okay? So if you want to get the retinal specialist off your back and have them stop taking saying the patient stop taking that and take this that's what you do solves the issue and you don't have a problem with the with them at all yeah so yeah it's, it's interesting I, I guess i think i think and you've heard me say this before but i think that our profession and and probably general ophthalmology as well has been browbeaten by retinal specialists that are just saying a reds two category three four a reds two category three four and so you know, the, it takes such a long time for these studies to be done that the natural history, this is what's really interesting to me about AREDS data is that if you look at just the natural course of patients in, um, in category with small drusen, less than 63 microns, developing category, developing vision loss over the course of 10 years, it's like one in 200. So the number of patients that you'd have to have, did you have to observe in 10 years would be so astronomical that you to have a, a, a control arm and then a treatment arm in those patients mm-hmm. that um, that you're probably never going to find a study that's going to show you that. Right. But we have all these other studies that make these links. And I've talked about it before on the podcast between, between increased macular pigment optical density, increased serum, uh, serum concentrations of your carotenoids and reduced, uh, well, I'm going the wrong way, but and reduced risk for macular, for macular degeneration. And so to think that we're going to have a study, I, I, mean, I, I hope we do, but I agree with you. I think to have a study that's going to tell us is going to be way down the line. Way down the line. And yeah, we're not yeah. dealing with the disease that's five years or 10 years. We're dealing with a disease that is 20, 30 years. And the earlier we can detect it now, we can detect it even with, with great photos and OCT technology, and even now ADAPT-DX, we can detect it so early that you could intervene and and make and change the course for that patient. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's our obligation, by the way. Yeah. I believe that optometrists are going to be at greater risk in the future if they haven't done the evaluation and found this. Well, tell me about that. Well, yeah, tell me about that. Well, I want you to think about this. Now, we know that if somebody... Um, five years from now has developed AMD and they don't go regularly to their doctor and um, whether it's even 10 years, doesn't matter. And they had vision loss and now they go, well, for, you know, I went and saw this doctor every three years or so. They don't go for regular visits. Um, I I believe that that person develops it and the doctor, when they go back and challenge their records, they said they never tested for Mm. it. So if you tested for it back five or 10 years ago, you may have been able to see this then. You were neglecting Mm. that patient's care and therefore you did not provide the quality of care and and the type of care that you should have back then. Patient now has lost some of their vision. I think doctors of optometry are going to be at risk for that. 
Yeah, I think general ophthalmologists will be as well. Oh, yes. Guys are no, as well. no question. But, but I care like, more about my colleagues. Yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> I, I think what I don't want to do is just place the undue scare of, no. of just on optometry. But you're right. I mean, take one or two lawsuits. That's all it and is. That's it. I mean, okay. and so then let me, let me, I said it was going to be the last question. I always <laughs> do this. But I actually wonder now with, with the MySight being uh, FDA approved, now are you at the same risk of lawsuit? And and it probably would be even escalated because let's say you got a, a ten year old that winds up and you never talk to him about it for ten years and all of a sudden they're a minus ten you you start with them at a minus one and their risk for retinal the lifetime risk for retinal detachment glaucoma correct maculopathy is significantly increased. Well, now we have an FDA approved option. Does it mean that every single chart we have says talked about discussed options for myopia control i mean have we gotten to that yet i i'm not sure we're there yet on the myopia control but i think it's not going to be long before we are yeah i think the the, the protocols and the standard of care is changing yeah and we need to change with it it's interesting so, um you know it's we would hope that one diopter myope doesn't become 10 diopters that we would see them a little bit between there of course you know but but the reality of it is that that's one of our obligations yeah. is to be aware as the eye doctor about what the patient's alternative is and share that with them. And then, of course, document right. that. That's the key. Yeah. Yeah. It's, inter yeah. it's interesting. I, I think yeah. it's really interesting times. And um, there's a lot of, I mean, that's another reason why I'm excited about just what we do every day. It's just yeah, fun. I it's agree. fun to take care of patients. And there's a lot of awesome stuff we can do. Yep. I agree. Harvey, thanks for coming in and doing this. I appreciate it. Chris, I appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me. You're welcome. Thanks. Thanks.